hello and welcome to the Myland Institute podcast coming to you from Queen Mary University of London. I'm Dr Lindsay Jenkins, one of the deputy directors at the Institute and in today's episode we'll be discussing Out of the Darkness, Green and Voices 1981 to 2000, a new book by Kate Caro and Rebecca Morden. This book reunites the trailblazing women from the Green and Peace Camp and charts their recollections of camp life, including how they organised, the ways in which they challenged the military, police and other cultural forces. To discuss the book and the wider themes that it raises, I'm delighted to welcome three special guests. Uh, Rebecca Morden is Artistic Director at the production hub Scary Little Girls. She's involved with every aspect of Scary Little Girls, including acting, writing and producing, and is a grassroots campaigner against male violence and a frequent expert on BBC Radio and Sky News. She is one of the authors of Out of the Darkness, which celebrates the green and pioneers of peaceful protest. Sasha Rosenil is Executive Dean of the Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences and Professor of Interdisciplinary Social Science in the Institute of Advanced Studies, UCL. She's a sociologist and gender studies researcher, a group analyst and psychoanalytic psychotherapist. She's also a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences and a principal fellow of the Higher Education Academy. And Freya Marshall Payne is a visiting research fellow at the Marland Institute and a writer and doctoral student researching the life stories of women who experienced homelessness at the University of Oxford's Centre for Life Writing and Department of Education. Her ESRC funded research is an interdisciplinary project spanning life writing, education and contemporary social history. Her research interests include personal testimony, working class politics and culture, and grassroots activism and DIY media production. Thank you very much, all of you, for joining us. And it's a particular pleasure. I'm actually the only member of the um, of the of the team today who hasn't got a personal correction, uh, connection to Greenham, except that I grew up down the road, and so it was always something that kind of you know existed in the background for me in, in my my 80s childhood. So I'm going to start by um, asking Rebecca about um, the book specifically, but I wonder if we could maybe take a step back and ask you about the origin of the oral history project and its development into the book. So my my mum was a, uh, a Greenham woman, a, a supportive uh, local member of the community uh, and a CND um, bod who visited the camp, um, got arrested at the camp, um, did a night watch where she would look, stay up and look, look over tents and, and keep women safe when they were, had come out of prison or, or after big actions. Um, she and my dad would bring food to the camp, things like that. And um, we did a lot of kind of an NVDA sort of stuff in my childhood and it totally radicalised the way that I was brought up it was it was brilliant it started me on a road to of to feminism when i was you know 5 you know we were analyzing fairy stories and things together me and my mum and i was i was aware from really young how valuable fem- feminism was to me and how much our the, the, the way I was being brought up was influenced by the way that my mum had been had had experienced feminism and sisterhood and women only space at Greenham Common. And then I got to about 40, which is about five years ago now. And I realised that even though many thousands of women had been touched by Greenham Common through some of the big actions and, and through the way it had changed the dialogue around dinner tables all over the country about uh, nuclear disarmament and feminism and all sorts of things, actually no one under 40 seemed to know anything about it when I spoke to them about it. And I was really disturbed by that I felt that was cultural robbery you know these were we couldn't stand on the shoulders of these giants who were having to reinvent the wheel all the time and I and women inspire women like it's just exciting to know that women did these things and and you know think about what you might do in a similar situation so I basically started I approached um, Kate Caro who runs the amazing heroin collective which is an amazing uh, really fantastic resource if you get a chance to have a look at that 
please do. And we agreed that we, we felt there should be an, an archive of these women's voices. My mum had died by this time. Other women that I knew who were much more involved in the camp, like Helen John, had died. And we just thought if this if these voices, you know, go and, and no one is cataloguing them, then they're gone and that that's that's wrong. So we started this archive project um, with money from the Heritage Lottery Fund. And we assumed that we would be fortunate if we could find 20 or 30 green and women who might let us record them and make a website. And we worked with um, London School of Economics Women's Library to, to, to house them and all that sort of thing. Actually, what happened was we put out an open call and we had over 300 women come to, to us almost sort of like almost straight away. We were sort of deluged. It was, it was kind of brilliant and really intimidating at the same time. So actually, the, the archive has become a much bigger project. It's now um, a digital site, an archive within the Women's Library, um, a VR exhibition, um, and, and various other sort of online gaming and digital interfaces. It's it's over 200 interviews. It's huge, hundreds of images. And we quite often get some really irresistible hard archive as well, that, like banners and things that just sit around our houses because we're not an institution or a venue of any kind. So we're just wondering what to do with these wonderful things that we get given as well. And we're, we're working on that. So that's, that's the background. And then when you've heard all those amazing voices, Obviously, you want other people to hear them. That was when we we then put the book put the book put the book together. So yeah, and, and the book has over at least sixty women's voices in it to tell the history of of the peace camp. It's such an interesting <clears throat> book as well. And I think you've you know the in terms of the objectives that you were just discussing in terms of prioritising those voices and and making sure that history isn't lost. I mean, it's it's just done such a fantastic job at that. And Sasha, you are also someone whose I suppose life and work has been shaped by your um, experiences at. Um, Greenham. I wonder if you could talk to us about the relationship between the um, the broader women's liberation movement and what was happening at Greenham. Yes, certainly. I mean, firstly, just to say that I think the project that Rebecca and uh, colleagues have been doing has been just fantastic. Um, I I wrote a couple of books about Greenham, uh, one back in 1995 and one that was published in 2000. And, uh, and you know, that was 21 years ago. And so Rebecca's absolutely right that the memory of Greenham has really had been very significantly erased and lost um, and uh, making sure that uh, that current generations um, and future generations of women particularly um, know about the history of Greenham is so important because it has been a, a, a kind of phenomenally significant social movement um, in the 20th century um, and, and it really must not be forgotten. Um, so it's it's so important that this work has, has been done. Um, I, I interviewed 35 women when I, I did my research for my PhD which I started back in 1998. Uh, so I was interviewing women sort of, it felt like I was doing oral history then but actually of course it was so recent um so close in time to to greenham um compared with now um so it's really interesting to see actually how how similar the stories are and how yeah how, how much of the memory that you know and I'm, there are some of the same women that that uh, rebecca's team interviewed as as i interviewed and many different as well and you know there are parallels between how they're telling the stories now and how they were telling the stories 20, 25, 30 years ago. Greenham absolutely emerges out of the women's liberation movement. Um, it, it, it is inconceivable that it could have taken off in the way that it did without the women's liberation movement having happened. Um, but that said, not every woman who got involved with Greenham at all was already a feminist. Um, or had been a, a kind of women's liberation movement activist. Um, the women, you know, who who sort of started 
Greenham by organising the original walk um, from South Wales to Greenham, I don't think would have particularly called themselves feminists. I mean, they they set up a group that they called Women for Life on Earth. They're very much driven by their experience as mothers and their fears for the future of their children and their sense of kind of women's exclusion from the decisions that were shaping the kind of geopolitics, the nuclear politics of the day. I mean, what that meant was that, that actually some feminists, many feminists in Britain, had a sort of scepticism or even a hostility towards Greenham in the early days. They felt that, that it was a kind of maternalist movement that was in many ways in tension with the kind of critical um, relationship to, to gender hierarchies and ideas about women that some Greenham women were expressing. But actually many feminists did come to Greenham and get involved and uh, the politics of Greenham were, were absolutely feminist. But there were some, there certainly were some uh, women's movement activists who remained quite sceptical and hostile to Greenham um, throughout it. But I think many, um, you know, came and dipped a toe in and saw that this was really a very powerful social movement where women were doing all sorts of amazing things that they hadn't ever been able to do and were finding a voice um, on a whole set of issues and organising in a range of, um, you know, very radical and innovative ways um, that were absolutely in line with with feminist values and that were taking feminism in new directions. Thank you so much for everything that you have both just said, Rebecca and Sasha. I feel like there is so much that could be unpicked, so many really, really rich and valuable kind of threads um, to this. And the place that I would like to start, I think, is... Um, kind of the theme of popular memory, um, which I feel like you've both really touched on. Um, you've both had this sense that um, the kind of narrative of, of Greenham and, and what it was and what it meant to so many women um, was silenced or kind of left to one side. And one of the things that I found really interesting in um, my own academic um, kind of work on Greenham, where I've begun to sort of try and unpick and look at the 1990s and the kind of afterlives of Greenham after its um kind of heroic early stages in, in like 82 and 81, um, is that really there's this kind of space that things like the miners' strike in 84 occupy and things like 1968 occupy for the left. And in many ways, Greenham doesn't seem to do that. But at the time in the 80s, so many books were being published by participants that really seemed to be staking a powerful claim that this was this huge um, sort of cultural political moment that was marking so many people's lives. And so I guess I, I'm curious um, how you think that historical projects and also perhaps kind of heritage projects, education oriented projects can begin to reposition um, Greenham's kind of framing in uh, popular memory in Britain and kind of what you would think you would be aiming for in terms of kind of resituating it, how you would like people to be able to look at it. But I think one of the difficulties um, that there is for conventional histories um, about Greenham is that that um, it was it was a very amorphous social movement. So it did it it did occupy a place, um, you know, Greenham Common near Newbury in Berkshire, but it was also a kind of huge network. And the metaphor of the kind of spider's web was much used at the time. It was a, it was a network before we really talked about networks of women that spread across the country and across Europe and indeed around the world. 
Um, so it was both kind of in place but had no place. And it existed over a long period of time. I mean, there, there was a beginning for sure, you know, the moment when women arrived at Greenham and, and kind of decided not to leave. But the ending is very unclear. Um, uh, you know, when exactly did Greenham end? No one can really say. I mean, it kind of, you know, drifted on, um, you know, considerably uh, after the, the missiles were removed. Um, but whether whether it was really the camp or whether it was still some women just living on the common um, the ideas, the networks um, and uh, the relationships between the women of Greenham continue to this day. So in some ways you could say it's never ended. But that, of course, makes it quite difficult to tell the history and to tell the story. The media in particular, they like memorable moments. You know, 1968, uh, you can kind of capture that. It's one year. It's it's kind of easy to remember. It's easy to think about. It's bounded in time. And Greenham isn't quite like that. Well, it's not like that at all. It's difficult to kind of to conceptualise and to hold in your hands that that does pose some challenges uh you know there's there's no membership list to greenham you know it's not an organization that people signed up to so you couldn't research it by saying well we'll, we'll you know we'll we'll trace everyone who was a member but actually of course the kind of internet enables a kind of way of reaching out uh, to, to networks that wasn't wasn't available until fairly recently one of the interesting things about our archive is that it, had, it was self-selecting we put the word out there and then women came to us and so we're trying now to actually be a bit more proactive and reach out reach out as well as still be here going while we've got the funding we've got please do come to us if you'd like to, to. we you know we'd love your interview if you'd like to lodge it and i suppose that goes in some way to answering your your question Fred. I think in that just speaking as someone who's archiving or as part of a team archiving these women's experiences, one of the main things I've learned is that it's so important to have archiving led by, by at least in part, by the people that were involved in the history, if it's possible, because there are things like, you know, I, I sort of had this impression that the, that the, the missiles went and that was sort of the end of the camp, but people sort of just stayed there. And then we interviewed, you know, some really, some women who uh, certainly the camp was much smaller and they struggled to get the numbers there after that. But that was in part because people sort of went, oh, the missiles are gone now, that's that job done. Whereas the the, the camp, as, as Sasha said, it had so many different aims and, and a really big aim was bring down the fences, get the common back. And actually, you know, I hadn't realised until I interviewed some of the women that that was a really dynamic um, aim for, for a lot of the women that stayed was our job is not done you know we we have to bring these fences down we have to get the common back for the people and at the time they're staying on and living on and doing that and working with the locals and actually repairing a lot of the um, animosity with the locals in, in working with them to get the common back we're heading towards the Iraq war so in every sense they're right you know the work is not is not done just because those particular cruise missiles had left Greenham um, and they do it you know they get the common back and that's now a really important part I think of how our archive certainly and, and people who interact with it tell the story of Greenham. It's not just the story up to 80 whatever when the cruise missiles go, which is a really important story because it changes international law. It's a huge story. But it, it, it isn't, that isn't, there is this whole other section of, of time and, and successful campaigning again, because that's the amazing thing about Greenham. It's so successful. I mean, for us not to celebrate something that so many thousands of women were involved with, that was so successful is, you know, is a really da da damning um, statement on patriarchy, essentially, I suppose, in the system we live in. But anyway, so they have this very successful campaign to get the comment back to the point where when we recently celebrated um, the, the, the 40th anniversary of, of the women arriving at the Common, the, the bigwigs, the kind of like the, the local mayors and things, it came and actually officially in front of cameras apologised to the Greenham women and thanked them for giving the Common back to them and that they were all now enjoying for subsequent generations. And that's just amazing. And I don't think 
that I would have known to drive the archive in a way that included all that and that would include that in my press interviews and things like that. If I hadn't had been working with women who were driving the archive process and the interview process, who'd been at Greenham and knew this other side of the history, obviously much better than I did. I think it's really important that that sense of things being lateral the inspiration that Greenham gives of many voices. I'm very interested in that because obviously once we start to archive things through traditional methods, we're doing it in quite a hierarchical way. It's, you know, a small amount of people deciding what gets remembered or even with the best will in the world. So I'm kind of interested in how we, I suppose, how we how you do radical archiving, how you get lots of voices um, in there and how you kind of um, then share that with others um, and try to find lots of different ways in which people can, can, can interact with those archives. Because just leaving it in a university is vital and it's also really restrictive in terms of the audience who are going to see it but so is only having it on a website or so you know we're trying to we're trying to do a board game we're trying to do podcasts we're trying to do um interactive um verbal and visual gaming online we've done this you know we've done um a big online virtual reality uh digital um exhibition with loads of green and women's own um art as well as their own statements in how can we present a load of different ways to interact with this so that it can be everyone's history particularly I guess young women one of the really key things that you brought out there as well is kind of how it relates to the wider feminist movement how it relates to these kind of politics of memory of, of what we should be giving younger women to celebrate and kind of making people aware of these connections that might exist um, I did think it was really interesting how you both um, sort of touch on this idea of the memorialization of Greenham and kind of what happened in its later phases, which is what I'm specifically most interested in. I was just really curious kind of how that open call that you put out functioned and in particular, whether there was any way um, that you were able to ensure that you got the testimonies um, of BAME women who were at Greenham, because as we know, it was a rather white movement. And I think one of the things that's really powerful about Out of Darkness is how you have these testimonies of anti-racists and anti-imperialists and of women who um, are BAME and their enjoyments and difficulties of being at Greenham. I'll start with how we began, which is that we put this open call out using social media and using the press. And so women came to us because they heard us on the on the radio and things, but they also came to us through that because the, the network of Greenham is still so in so in so in, still is so in existence, particularly amongst the women who lived there for long for longer amounts of time. So you, I might you know we might drop something onto Twitter and onto Facebook, and 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 try and reach Facebook groups and uh, that way. But then they would also share it, and it kind of really spread like wildfire. It was really exciting. Then we had this awful thing of oh my god, we're a smaller team <laughs> than the responses that we've had. So we did have to then do exactly what I was saying earlier. We had to be those few people choosing who we could actually, you know, in, in terms of human resources and time, who could we actually interview out of all the people that come forward in the first round. We've actually carried on going back through and trying to get as many of them as we can. And we have, I think, got most of them now. But basically we did, we did look at everyone and they'd all submitted like a bit of just literally like a sentence about themselves. And we just basically, it was kind of cruel, but we kind of went, okay, we're trying to get a sense for, for anyone who comes to this archive, we want to show them how many different kinds of women were involved in Greenham. So we want to make sure we've got the stories of women who lived there, the stories of people who went to prison there. We want the stories of women who just visited for a night, but it changed everything or, or they visited now and then. And they did all this stuff in their own community, which was many, many miles away and carried Greenham home and all that kind of thing. Um, women who, who had, who, um, you know, had written to us explaining that they'd had 
you know, it changed their lives and they, they never looked back and they were, they were delighted about it all. And then women who said, this was the worst time of my entire life and I was utterly miserable. You probably don't want to hear that story. And we were like, yes, we do. <laughs> and certainly one of the things that I think is fantastic about Greenham and that, that was amazing to go through was the diversity. Because I think there is a, you know, there's a risk that we reduce women's stories uh, down wherever we can. And one of the ways we did that with Green was by saying it was white and therefore it wasn't diverse. And actually, uh, it, it was a massively international movement. Uh, the Green women themselves recognised that 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 they that they need that they wanted to be um, as diverse as possible. And women joined. You know, they they made connections with women all over the world, including um, indigenous women who were having lots of places in the world. We test weapons where people have the least power, which is often on indigenous land in the Pacific and America. Um, there were women coming over from. Japan, who was Hiroshima survivors or members of that peace movement. And there were people from, women from all over Europe um, and, and, and the rest of the world as well. And as you say, there were quite a lot of uh, black and mixed mixed heritage women who came to or lived at the camp as well. They were certainly smaller in number than the other women that, that, that lived there who, who were Caucasian. Um, but there's also a huge amount of other diversity, which, which was really exciting to find as well. There are women with all sorts of different physical abilities. There was lots of um, women who'd experienced mental health issues and, and had, had, had had that handled for them well or badly by being at Greenham or had handled it well and badly themselves. There's every kind of age of woman, obviously every sexual or like the, the sexual orientation, uh, every social class, which is really interesting as well. There are links to all the other campaigns, like there's really fantastic um, links to the miners' wives and the miners, actually. The, the miners used to send green and women coal and green and women used to send the miners tinned food because they they didn't want to eat, that they were getting being donated meat and it was a vegetarian camp. So they'd send them ten, tins of beef stew and things. So basically that's what we were looking for when we were going through to try and find how could we be as representative as possible. So when people came to it, they realised this is a movement that, that wasn't just about whether you lived there or whether you visited there. It was a movement about ev- everything, both those extremes and everything in between. Uh, and that's what we were trying to capture in that first round of interviews. And then we've just carried on trying to go through and catch as many as possible because every one of those stories has, has ended up being fascinating. Um, and the great thing about that amorphousness of, of Greenham, as one, of, as in fact, Sue Say, who's an amazing woman who talks a lot about her experience of being a black woman living at camp and being a black woman going to prison <laughs> in her interviews and getting totally different sentences to her to her white friends for doing the same actions and things she's a a fascinating woman she says you know you couldn't defeat something that came at you in so many different forms that's why Greenham was so successful with you know against the authorities that it was up against and I think that is um, what we were trying to represent and it's and it's also what protected Greenham in many ways because the split that you talk about was awful for the people who were involved in it you know the yellow gators who were involved in that but there are quite a lot of women in our archive who are like either had never heard that even happened at other gates. It was just, they were just kind of doing their own thing. But because a lot of that got put into books quite early on, a lot of, quite a lot of the, the women from Yellow Gate were in academia and it got sort of, it's become a thing where that's a thing that split Greenham and actually it didn't, it, it horribly split Yellow Gate. The, the amazing thing about Greenham is that in, in, a, in a great way, it's a hydra, you know, you cut off one head, but all the other heads are still doing stuff. And, and so even one really important thing that happens to one group of people might ne- ne- not even filter through to, to affecting what might have been happening. At other, although a lot of the gates obviously did try and um, help and resolve that split. Green were very involved in, in trying to um, repair damages and things with that and come to resolutions. But it just, there's just such an, uh, what we were trying to reflect in our, in our process was how many women 
experiences Greenham can represent and that you can then find if you if you have a listen to them you're going to get this really amazing range of women's experiences so that in a very unformal way was our methodology and then the rest of our methodology was get more money interview all the other women because they're all fascinating and that's still what we're kind of doing but I suppose what you're talking about is a kind of feminist way of doing research and in the way that you know part of the difficulties that we maybe have about fitting Greenham into kind of a, a general political history or general British history is that women were trying to do something different and therefore it doesn't kind of conventionally fit into the conventional stories that we, you know, that mm. we, we try. And so I think that, you know, saying that we're doing a kind of explicitly feminist methodology is an important, you know, you couldn't do it in any other way, could you? Otherwise you wouldn't be doing justice to their, to their legacy. Yeah, that's definitely how I feel about it. We're talking at a moment in which, you know, feminism is, undergoing a resurgence and certainly a greater kind of visibility and prominence but also kind of experiencing a, a series of of difficult um internal disputes we're also particularly um recording during uh, in a moment in which environmentalism and kind of concern for the future and the natural world is is very much on everyone's minds um and i wonder if you could maybe reflect both of you on what greenham can teach us both as kind of as feminists but also kind of citizens concerned about the future of the world you know it has important legacies for both feminism and environmentalism doesn't it yes it does absolutely um i mean i think greenham was um very engaged in environmental politics um back in the 80s and 90s and um there was a lot of discussion about green politics at, at greenham um indeed uh, some some women often referred to green and as green hand common um, really emphasizing the green element um, there was a, a kind of collective desire to live lightly on the common um, you know to, to more than not just leaving litter but you know to really um, experience what it is to um, to compost your waste um, and not to uh, consume plastics and um, to you know to really think about where things came from and where they were going to a kind of you know, circular economy before that phrase was was coined. Um, so there was a lot of, of kind of concern and talk about the environment. Um, I mean, it made the whole issue of the miners' strike quite contested at Greenham. So there was a very strong desire to support the miners and a kind of, uh, you know, solidarity uh, with people in mining communities, but also, you know, quite a strong concern amongst many women about the burning of um, fossil fuels and a sense that this was not the way we should be, um, you know, heating our um, heating our world, and that it was heating the planet. So, you know, things that are now taken for granted, but at the time uh, of Greenham were, um, you know, were barely sayable, were very much in, you know, in the kind of discourse of Greenham. And I think the kind of lessons that Greenham taught the world were that very, you know, very small groups of very committed people, and especially of, of committed women, can change the world. Um, and, you know, it's not just Greenham that's taught us this, but, you know, you don't actually need to uh, to win elections to change to change the world. You need to change public opinion, um, and you need to um, operate in. You can operate in ways um, that go directly to the people um, and through the people um, and through women when governments don't want to listen. Um, and that certainly was the case with the Conservative government at the time. It didn't want to listen to what Greenham was saying. And um, I mean, that's not the situation we're in now. Every, every kind of government pretty much is saying that they're concerned about uh, the kind of future viability of life uh, on Earth and and climate change and environmental sustainability. But whether they're going to actually do enough um, without 
concerted citizen pressure is unclear. And you know that the, the current kind of environmental activism has learned a lot from Greenham. The kind of methodologies being employed by climate activists at the moment um, are very resonant with with Greenham um, and the kind of nonviolent direct action that Greenham sort of really made uh, well known as a as a protest method. That's one of the reasons I feel so passionate about the, the Greenham Women Everywhere project, you know, it be, and, and why I've kind of, why I can't sort of, well, why, why there's such a great team behind it and why we can't step away from it the more we know. And it's because it's so relevant, you know, where we've just, you know, if you look at what the Greenham Women were trying to do, you know, they were trying to, in very broad, obviously, again, lots of different aims but in very broad strokes you know it was it was environmentalism it was it was feminism it was um you know de-escalation of violence particularly nuclear violence now you know we're in a culture at the moment you know the sash has just outlined that's certainly facing climate crisis where we're winning the hearts and minds to, to put pressure on governments to make meaningful climate change has never been more more important um and we've got a government that have just voted down a really important bill that would stop us just dumping sewage into the into our rivers and oceans. And they've just increased our nuclear spending. They've committed, you know, a 40% rise in, in, in our nuclear spending and Trident. And we're seeing, you know, we're seeing the Sarah Everard case. We're seeing people suddenly really engaging with institu- how institutionally sexist and, and compromised uh, our, our culture is. You know, and racism absolutely feeds into that. You know, we've got institutional problems around male violence to oppressed groups. Um, Greenham was, was shining a light on, on all of that. I mean, there's a, a really inter- interesting interview where some Greenham women who were involved, in fact, it's Anne Scargill talks in our archive, who is, of course, married to Arthur Scargill um, at the time of the minor strikes. And she says she came down to Greenham and was horrified by how violent the police were with the Greenham women, little knowing that that was what was about to happen, um, of course, it writ even larger uh, in the minor strikes. I think in terms of what Green has to offer women now, it's the power of um, of, of 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 you know uh, peaceful, non-violent anarchist uh, dissent. Um, it's the power of women-only action, and uh, and also you know it, 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 you know the, the framework within which we, like as Sasha said, can change policy through creative, non-violent protest, and and bring people with us on that and inspire inspire other people. What what I think is really marked is that we get the sense from the media and the government that no matter what we say, it doesn't really make a difference. It's all it's all a bit bleak, and we should probably not bother. Greenham had um, was both aware of the bleakness, but also. Uh, aware of the, the power of connectivity. So what, what it says to us when you start to look at Greenham is actually there's every reason to come together. You will absolutely change things. You will change yourself and each other and then you will change your world. And there's no going back from finding that out. So I, that's one of the things that I think is so brilliant about Greenham now. Not only are the things it's doing completely relevant to the things we're trying to do now, it actually shows how by doing them together and by doing them creatively, um, you can actually accomplish a huge amount. Uh, and that is obviously enormously motivating. And we need that sort of motivation, I think, now more than ever. And that's a lovely moment to end on. Thanks ever so much, Rebecca. Um, I'd like to thank our three guests, um, as well as Rebecca Morden, Freya Marshall-Payne and Sasha Rosneal. Please do subscribe to our podcast for future episodes and you can find the Marl End Institute on social media and sign up to the mailing list on our website to hear first about our future events. Thank you very much for listening.